Good morning. It's a pleasure to be able to be here today to get to see um, the joining of members to bring us together into God's word as well as to um, embrace the joy of the sacrament of communion. It's a full day today um, and I'm excited for the opportunity to be a part of that with you. We're going to continue our studies through the book of Ephesians, so I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking together at verses 15 through 23. Uh, Now, if you were here the last time that I was here, I began to unpack for us the book of Ephesians and to remind you of the context of the book of Ephesians, which was Paul's experience on his missionary journey. He went to Ephesus, this city that was primarily known because of the worship of Artemis, or as you may know her better, Diana. And while he was there proclaiming a different God, a God that was greater than Diana, that the city got caught up in uproar and they got upset that there would be something greater than Diana. And so they gathered together as a city and chanted for multiple hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the context for Paul speaking the gospel into Ephesus, was this heart of worship that he saw of the grandeur of Artemis. But in light of that, Paul writes to these Ephesians, and he holds out for them something that is greater than Artemis of the Ephesians, the triune God. And so what he begins to do in chapter 1 is helps point people to the greatness of the God that we know through the Bible, the God of Scripture, that our hearts are not caught up with the greatness of Artemis or the things of this world, but our hearts are caught up with him. When I was in college, we had a, a, a a guest lecturer come into one of my classes. And it's interesting, I remember what the guest lecturer said more than the actual professor. (laughs) But one of the things he talked about was how sometimes in our culture we have these two different folksy sayings that seem like they are going against each other. So one example he gave is the, the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know, the idea that if if someone is away that you love, you kind of miss them. And because you're missing them, you realize in a sweet way in that sadness of their not being with you, how much you care. But then he said, we also hear people say, when the cat's away, the mouse will play. He's like, well, which one is it? Like if the person that you love is away, does that kind of free you up to pursue other loves? Or is it when the person's away that you realize how much you love them? And it seems like they're contradicting each other, but the truth is is that they're both looking at the same truth from different perspectives. Because the core truth that unites them is this, that what the heart sees, the heart wants. What the heart sees, the heart wants. And so absence can make your heart grow fonder if when the person that you love is away and you're looking at them with the eyes of your heart. You're seeing them, reflecting on them in their their beauty, their delight, their joy to you. And because you're focusing on them, your heart grows in love. But if something else captures your heart when you're uh, missing that person, then you're not going to miss them that much, are you? But instead, you're going to become caught up with something new that is capturing your heart. When my students ask me, 
When am I going to get over this broken heart from a breakup? I always tell them, when you fall in love with something else. What the heart sees, the heart wants. And Paul is drawing that idea to our intention in this passage by helping the Ephesians to see that they need hearts that are seeking after God. Let's now turn our attention to God's word as I read for us starting in chapter 1, verse 15, through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pause and ask his help in our understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us good things. You give us life. You give us eyes to see the beauty of your creation. You give us love from family and friends and from you. And you give us your word that through these things we might understand who is the giver of all good things. And we pray even now that we would see your goodness through these words. For Jesus' sake, amen. Sometimes when I'm hungry and we sit down at dinner... My wife will pray, and she loves to pray. She's a good prayer. But sometimes I begin to get frustrated because I'm hungry. And her prayer continues when my belly is saying, it's time to eat. I can get frustrated because at that moment, I don't want to appreciate the gratitude I should have. I want to appreciate the food I want in my belly. Perhaps the Ephesians may be feeling that way with Paul. Last time when we got together, we we looked at the beginning of the letter of Ephesians where Paul goes on for over 200 words in one long sentence of, of gratitude towards God. And then he ends that sentence. He ends that prayer. But the interesting thing that he does is he starts another prayer. He begins to pray even more. Paul starts this section in verse 15 saying, for this reason. Paul follows that tremendous prayer of gratitude, reflecting in praise of God with this new prayer for others. The praise in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, becomes the prayer of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And then Paul takes that prayer that he prays and he pauses and pulls back in chapter 2 before he gets back into praying in chapter 3. 
the first half of the book of Ephesians is really one big prayer that bounces between thinking about God and then praying to God. And I think this is helpful to start with because Paul is showing us right from the beginning in a sense of what it looks like for us to really know what God is like. When we see God for who he is, when we understand what he's like, when we see his glory, it moves us to prayer. It moves us to speak back to him. It moves us to engage with him. Paul, when he's reflecting on God, doesn't get distracted, but he gets more intensely focused on God. It doesn't move him away from God, but it draws him more into an intimate relationship with God. Paul here is modeling for the Ephesians and modeling for us what he would want for all believers. To see that when we understand who God is, we think about him more. We speak about him more. We praise him more. We pray to him more. And that's why Paul wants the Ephesians in this passage to become more like him. You see, that's what he, in a sense, is praying for as he kind of models for them his own sense of delight in the Trinity. He wants them to be like him, delighting in the Trinity. He wants them to join with him in adoration for God. Paul has already been saying, great is the triune God, much greater than Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. And he's wanting the Ephesians to join in that chant with him. Great is the triune God. And that's why the heart of what he prays for is seen in verse 18 when he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is wanting the Ephesians to know what they have in the love of God. Now, keep in mind that Ephesians is a letter not to non-Christians trying to convince them to consider Jesus, not that there wouldn't be some that would read it that didn't have faith, but what he's writing is a letter to Christians. And so here it helps us to understand that as Paul is thinking about Christians, what he's wanting for them, as he's thinking about the Ephesians, what he's wanting for them is for their hearts, as he says, to be enlightened in the knowledge of God. Now, this is something that's important to us to remember as Christians. That Christianity doesn't encourage you to look inward. Instead, it encourages you to look outward. And this is a beautiful aspect to me about Christianity. It's freeing because the truth is is that there's nothing more boring than me reflecting on me. Perhaps you have this experience. If you're waiting in the checkout line, and it's more than five seconds, what do you do? If you're like me, you pull out your phone, right? Why? I don't want to sit with me and my thoughts. I'd rather find something engaging on my phone that could draw my attention away from me. Paul wants us to have our heart not looking inward at us, but looking outward towards God. When we look in at ourselves, we get bored. We get discouraged. We already know who we are, and we probably don't even like what we are. But Paul wants us to take our gaze away from ourself and bring it towards God, bring it towards the triune God. 
Paul wants us to reflect often, frequently, and deeply on who God is. The Scottish minister, minister Robert Murray McShane would often say this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at your Savior. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at your Savior. But we often tend to flip that the other way around, thinking more about ourselves, our problems, the challenges that we face, our failures, the weaknesses that we feel, instead of taking those moments of thought and turning them around towards God. And when we think about ourselves, we grow discouraged because we know we can't solve our problems. We know we can't fix ourselves. But that's why Paul is praying that the eyes of the Ephesians would be enlightened. That they wouldn't know themselves more, but they would know more about their Savior, more about God. And again, this isn't something that they don't know, but he's wanting them to know it more. He's wanting them to continue to reflect more and more on God so that there's something that will grow inside of them. Paul prays this for these Ephesians because they already have Jesus as the object of their faith. He prays this for the Ephesians because he sees that the church is the object of their love. And he prays this because he wants God to be the object of their hope. Did you notice that he mentions those three vital virtues that show a growing relationship with God? Faith, hope, and love. Paul is wanting to see faith, hope, and love grow, but how is it that faith, hope, and love grow? It's through the way that the Spirit teaches us more about God, through the way that the Spirit gives us what we need, not thinking more about ourselves, but seeing, as Paul says, through wisdom and revelation, who God is in His glory, His greatness, and His grace. The Spirit is the one who grows in us faith, hope, and love, so that faith will help us to separate rightly from the world because we are united to Christ so that the love that comes from the Spirit would separate us rightly from our fleshly, selfish desires and unite us in love to the church, so that hope would rightly separate us from living for the things of this world and the works of the flesh and the world and the devil and rightly reorient our hands to living for God and His kingdom. And this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit comes into us and points us deeply and consistently to all of who God is until it changes all of our heart and all of who we are. When I was in seminary, I had a seminary-like joke. So it may not be funny to many of you, but it may be to some. And I would say that I'm not agnostic, but I'm agnostic. And what a Gnostic is, is it's someone that sees that there's this esoteric truth that is out there that's just beyond our ability as mere mortals to reach. And if only we could grab it, then it might bring us freedom, redemption from what we have. And what I realized in seminary is part of what was driving me to go to seminary was this thing that there's some deep-rooted theological truth that if I could just find it, if I could just hear it, if I could just learn it, then maybe I would change. And I was always looking for the next new thing to change me. But what I began to realize is that the power to change wasn't in what I didn't know, but was what I already knew. And the problem for me was that I kept thinking that something out there 
that is hidden is going to fix me or save me. And so I wasn't looking where I needed to look. What I already had in the gospel, what I already had in the scriptures, what I already had in the knowledge of God the Father. Paul doesn't want the Ephesians to be caught up in the trap of looking for some sort of secret or hidden truth that that would change them, but to recognize more and more the blessings that they already have in Christ. And this is why he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Because the truth is already there. But the question is, is are they seeing it clearly? It's in a sense like they have spiritual cataracts that have clouded their visions. And, and Paul wants the spirit to remove those cataracts so that they can see clearly what is right there in front of them. He wants the eyes of their heart to be enlightened, to see what they should already know. And at the Cincinnati Museum of Art, there was this small bronze mirror that they had for decades. And it just sat with all the other kind of not very important items. They never really wanted to display it because it was just kind of an old bronze mirror from the 15th or the 16th century. But they decided, well, they didn't want it to kind of be ignored. So they put it out in 2017. And when they put it out, their curator of East Asian art looked at it and thought, huh, it kind of seems familiar. And so what she did is she took out her phone and she put on the flashlight and she shined the flashlight into the mirror. And behind her, a faint image appeared. And so she then took the mirror and she began to study it, shining different types of light at different angles until finally one day behind her, a clear image came out. And what she realized was that this mirror that had sat there as though it was just a plain mirror was actually what's called a magic mirror. A magic mirror was this certain technique where they would carve an image behind the glass so that when light hits it just right, it would shine that image out behind the people. And all these years it had been missed because no one had shined a light on it. In a sense, that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that the Spirit would shine a light on what is already there, so that coming forth from that would be the image of Christ, that what would happen is as the Spirit shines the light into their hearts and they catch fire on the truths that they know, that, that Jesus would come forth in the way that they live. Renewal in Paul's mind doesn't come from you finding something out there that is new, that changes you. But the change comes from the Spirit shining a brighter and brighter heart uh, light into your heart so that what you already know is more clearly seen. And Paul helps us to see the things that we should already see, that we should already have when we look to the triune God and what he gives to us. And so he speaks about three things in particular that he wants the Ephesians to see. He speaks about the hope that we have in God, the inheritance for God and the power from God. But first, Paul talks about the hope that we have in God. As Paul is building on this desire for his people to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, he describes 
that one of the things that he wants is for them to have a knowledge of the hope to which God has called them. Paul here has in mind a lot of what he's already spoken on previously in this chapter, in the earlier part of chapter 1, the plan that God has for his people that was given even before the foundation of the world. But he has in mind a sense of hope that, that what God has as a plan is something that the people of God can have great confidence in. Hope in the New Testament is a looking forward to something that is sure, something that will happen an absolute certain reality that may not be fully realized. And Paul desires Christians to see that hope, to have that that hope shine into their heart because he knows that what you hope for will lead you, that what you hope for will guide you. And so Paul is praying that they have a sense of hope that comes from the gospel, from the work of God. The hope of the gospel, the hope of God, is a certainty of a future that's not yet realized. And think about how this hope can transform your life. As the Spirit shines the light of hope into your life, think about how it can change you. Just to give one example. As you get older, do you get more bitter or joyful? Sometimes as I'm getting older and I'm beginning to feel more creaks in the morning, more pain, I was like, ah, I want to look back to when I didn't have these. Those without hope look back and say, back there, those were the good days. Back there, that's the days of joy. That's the days of strength. But a Christian looks different. A Christian looks ahead to the the day when God comes fully in his kingdom, when Christ comes fully and, and brings fully all of his blessings to his people and says that day will be the day of joy. That day will be the day of strength. And Paul, as he's writing to these Ephesians in the midst of the challenges that they live in, wants them to know that that hope is always before them so that they don't look backwards and think that the better days were in the past. But keep enduring and suffering because they know that the better days are ahead. Paul wants Christians to see their hope that they have in God so they continue to labor for God. Knowing that at the finish line lies more joy and strength than they have ever known. Paul prays for their hope, but secondly, he speaks in verse 18 that they know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants Christians to realize how valuable is the inheritance that God has. Now, perhaps you're wondering, what is this inheritance that is Paul's speaking of? When he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's different ways that you can interpret it. You could think of it as the inheritance that the saints have that will come in heaven. But there's another way that many commentators reflect on that inheritance. That the inheritance that is spoken of is not the inheritance that the saints have, but the inheritance that God has. That in a sense, what Paul is speaking when he says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints is saying that that you and I are God's inheritance. That you and I are, in a sense, what God hopes for, looks for. 
Just as we hope for the day that we will be with him in joy and in strength, so too, in a sense, God hopes for the day that he will be with us. His joy. Now think about how that plays out for us. When into our heart is shined the light of the Spirit that says, do you know how much the Father loves you? That you are His treasure. That you are His inheritance. That you are what He is looking forward to having. But why is it that that we would be so precious to the Father? You know, those of you who are our parents know that, that the gifts that you receive from your children are, are precious. And, and in a sense, the preciousness of that gift is not so much just in that gift itself, but is in the, the thought that that child did, the effort that that child did that says, you know, I love you and that's why I wanted to give this to you. Now, how does the father receive the inheritance of the saints? It's through Jesus, right? It's through Jesus who laid down his life to buy us for the Father. And to see the extent to which his son went to win us for him must speak to us about how much God would treasure us. If his son gave his life as a ransom for us, how precious would he hold our life, our soul? We are a glorious inheritance to the Father that he delights in because we are a gift from his precious son. The Father has no greater inheritance than what his son redeemed for him. And so he loves them for his sake. He loves us for his sake. And Paul wants us to understand the hope that we have in God, but also the the way that God sees us as an inheritance, the joy that he has in us. But then lastly, he talks about having the Ephesians understand the immeasurable power that God has toward us who believe. Paul knows that people would know that God is powerful, but he wants them to realize that God is not just powerful, but wants them to see the direction of that power. Paul speaks in almost hyperbolic language, describing what's like a a mega dynamic power of God. Great is the triune God of the Bible. But the power of God is not something used just for his own glory, but the power of God is used for the glorification of his people. Paul says that the immeasurable greatness of his power is toward us who believe. God uses his power for your good. Paul uses, and God uses his glory for your glory. Paul wants us to understand the nature of God's love, that his love is moving him towards you in your weakness with his strength, that his love is moving him towards you in your failure with his forgiveness, that God is moving towards you with the immeasurable power that he has so that life, your salvation, your hope, doesn't rest upon your strength 
but on his. Paul wants us to understand the direction of God's power so that it frees us from fear, that it frees us from doubt, so that it frees us from discouragement. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And so Paul helps the Ephesians to see these pictures of God's love and the way that that he gives us a hope that is not rooted in us, but in him, that he gives us the knowledge that we are his treasure so that we know deeply his love. He gives us the hope that his power is always for us so that through these things we are changed, so that through these things Jesus is glorified. That's where Paul ends this section. As he speaks about the heart being enlightened in these ways, he then pulls back and begins to think about Christ. Where he, beginning in verse 19, says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now what Paul does there is he holds up Jesus as a great example of what it looks like to be filled with the glory of God and to reflect that into this world and speaks about the way that, that Jesus was glorified by the Father. But, but notice what he does. He says, as you see Jesus in his glory and the way that the Father glorifies him, don't you know that that's going to be you too? As he ends, he says, He put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The more we see the glory of Christ, what does that tell you about yourself? Your glory. But not a glory that is rooted in you, not a glory that is rooted in what you've done, but a glory that is rooted in Jesus and what he has done for you. You see, this is the nature of worship. This is the nature of what Christian life is about. That the more that we see God in his glory, the more that we see Jesus in his glory, what it does for us is it elevates us. It raises us up but not in a way that that focuses us in on ourself, but one that focuses us outward like Paul so that we move towards God in love and praise. One that, like Paul, is moved towards service and caring for others because we, like Jesus, don't seek our own glory because we've been given a glory, so we lay our glory down because it's something we already have in him. The more that the Spirit shines the light of the gospel into your heart, reflection gets shot back out. The reflection of Jesus. Because he is the one who fills us. And so when we are pricked, we bleed the Savior. The more that our hearts see the glory of God in Christ, the more that the glory of God in Christ is seen in us. beautiful thing 
is that helps us to know how deeply we must be loved by the Father. One Puritan said this, you lie too near to his heart for him to hurt you. And I've been reflecting on that. Do I really see myself as his treasure? Do I really see how near I am to his heart? If I do, then I have great cause for hope, great cause for faith, great cause for love. The more that I look at him, the more confidence I have. But the more that I look at my own heart, my own self, the less I have faith, hope, and love. You lie too close to his heart for him to hurt you. Why? Because his heart itself, his son, was hurt for you. And he would never throw away what was so preciously bought by his son, but would treasure it and use the immeasurable greatness of his power to pour into your hearts his love, that you might be steadfast in hope that he will be with you and you will be with him forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in your gospel and the way that it speaks to us the things that we need for life and for godliness. Help us to know these things more deeply, that we might live more faithfully. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.